All right, then. So who is going to be receiving the big hail, the hail to the chief? Well, no, January 20th, no one way or another, there will be a president inaugurated. Will it be Donald Trump? Will it be Joe Biden? Who knows? Maybe we know as a result of what happened last night, the final debate. That's our topic today on The Race Next Door, which is just part of the worldwide empire of the Bridge Daily. That's us. And Bruce Anderson is with us, as he always is, for The Race Next Door. He's in Ottawa, but we got a special guest today with us as well. You heard two nights ago we had Jerry Butts with us. Tonight, it's Lisa Raitt. Lisa Raitt is, of course, former Conservative MP, former Conservative Cabinet Minister, former deputy leader of the Conservative Party. Enough. Enough already. The list goes on. <laughs> she's got all the credits and put them all together. She's got more than Anderson and I put together. So we're, it's going to be very interesting to hear uh, her thoughts. And why don't we start, Lisa, with, first of all, welcoming you. It's great to have you with us. And Thank you very much. And second is is last night. I mean, you're no stranger to debates. You've been in them as an MP. You were, uh, you know, a, an official of the debate process in the recent uh, Conservative Leadership Convention. So you kind of know the ins and outs of what could happen, what's supposed to happen, and how these things are run. So we all know what happened on the first one between Biden and Trump. Last night, what was your take on last night? I have three things that I took away. The first was Trump appeared to do better only because he was so bad in the first one that the bar was set so low for expectations that coming in the way he did without running over the moderator or uh, over-talking Biden consistently, actually appearing on screen to be listening to the moderator or listening to, to Joe Biden, did him, uh, did him very well in the eyes of a lot of people saying, well, look, he, he wasn't as bad as last time. Doesn't mean he was good. It just means he wasn't as bad as last time. Second piece, I felt that last night was all about getting sound bites for ads for the next 10 days. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, Joe Biden's going to provide on specifically on the oil comments about how we're going to transition out of oil. We talk about that in Canada all the time. It's actually acceptable. It's verboten. I don't know whether or not it's verboten in the United States, and we're about to find out how far Trump's campaign is going to push it. And then on for the Biden campaign, for sure, his comments about people dying is uh, definitely going to be something to show the empathy of Joe Biden and the Democratic Party and what they care about. And then the third thing I would say is the first 10 minutes of the debate is always the most important, how people come out swinging, because you lose viewers, you lose people's interest, something happens, you go make yourself a drink, and you're, you're not glued into this debate any longer. And what Trump did was he came out and he defended his record, but on COVID-19, or the coronavirus as they call it, he was optimistic. We are going to beat this. We're going to be better. The vaccine is coming. Now, it may all be complete BS, but the reality is he showed optimism that people were going to get through this together. That was a positive thing to hear. Joe Biden, on the other hand, very negative. People are dying. More people are dying. We've got to cut this off. We've got to have a plan. And it's a little bit scary for people. So those are the three things that I, I took away overall, and whether or not that's going to move the needle in the election, well, or remains to be seen. That's an interesting analysis, and you know, if we start with the with the coronavirus with COVID nineteen, um, I guess it boils down to 
who they believe is telling the truth, you know, who's being, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic, who's being realistic about what the situation is. I mean, I thought one of the lines, uh, and you're right, I totally buy into your argument about the, it was all about finding clips. Um, but the, one of the, one of the pretty good clips initially on that very subject was uh, Trump doing the, we're living with it uh, answer in terms of, uh, uh, of the virus. And, Biden immediately responded with the, we're dying with it. Now, yeah. you know, a lot of people can, re- <laughs> can relate to that in terms of what Biden said, not so sure that they can relate to with, uh, with what Trump said. But um, it, that's an interesting take, and that opening 10 minutes or so can, make, can really make such a difference. I got to tell you, um, I might have been <laughs> alone on this, but I kind of thought, and, and, and first of all, you got to separate the lying because there's, I mean, Trump, Trump's a liar. He he lies a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you if you take that out, and I'm not sure that anybody can, but they probably they pro- can probably eliminate lying in terms of what they're thinking more now than they've ever done before in any other presidential debate. But if you take that out, and I watching Trump, I was thinking he's actually not doing bad here because he doesn't look wingnutty. Uh, as he did the last time, and I'm just talking about the first kind of 10 to 20 minutes, uh, the, that he was performing at a much a much better level. Now, I know Bruce doesn't agree with that. Bruce w- was on the <laughs> was on the gun right away on on, on Trump. So enter the discussion, Mr. Anderson. <laughs> well, Peter, I think uh, at least it's so good to see you again. Thanks for joining us today. I think that both campaigns almost uh, all the way from where they were probably all in Washington up to here where I am in Ottawa, you could almost hear the exhalation, the sigh of relief at the end of the, of the debate um, for similar reasons in the sense that both worried that they might, their candidate might really louse it up um, and both felt that their candidate didn't. Um, And I think there are, you know, campaigns that the, in the closing days uh, of a really long, grueling, difficult, um, hyper kind of focused campaign are entitled to feel that relief. But I'm not sure that um, the Trump campaign really can feel the same level of relief based on what happened last night that the Biden campaign can. I think that um, when we last talked about this a couple of days ago, I was talking about the fact that I thought that Trump really had a choice of going into the debate and playing himself or trying to play the role of somebody different than himself. And I think what he did um, is for the first 10 or 20 minutes, he tried to be somebody he wasn't. And I felt like I was watching an actor who is kind of putting on an accent, you know, maybe one of those Australian actors in a movie that's <laughs> about something in North America. And all of a sudden the act, the accent starts to wear off about 20 minutes in <laughs> and it starts to fall apart. I feel like he lost the thread of the character that he was trying to play because it just took too much brain power uh, for him to stay focused and to stay in the character and to apply that discipline to himself that he never, ever, ever seems to uh, apply. And so in continuing with the movie metaphors, I found myself thinking about those three characters in The Wizard of Oz the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion. And I felt like he was a little bit the Tin Man, uh, 
no heart. He was a little bit the scarecrow, bad brain or no brain. I think on a lot of issues, it was really remarkable the kinds of things that come out of his mouth should uh, still shock us. And, and a lot of times, I guess they don't. And uh, he's not a cowardly lion. He's got courage, uh, but it's kind of dumb courage. And he continued to show it last night when he says things like, well, okay, you know, the kids are in cages, but you built the cages and I just made sure that the cages were clean. clean. <laughs> I don't get why why that is an acceptable yeah. thing for us to think about, except when we yeah. go, well, Trump wasn't as bad. And I agree with Lisa a lot on that. Trump wasn't as bad. And so people are like, Okay, but how could anybody have been as bad after they failed so miserably the first time? They had to correct some of those kinds of things. So I would just sort of say, look, um, for me, who does not want to see Trump reelected, watching Biden every day is like watching a toddler on a unicycle uh, riding it on a tightrope. I'm terrified that something is going to go wrong, mm -hmm. that if he doesn't finish the sentence, if a thought tails off, that uh, Trump is going to be president for four more years. So that's an irrational level of fear, maybe. And I thought actually Biden stayed on the unicycle and stayed on the tightrope last night, pretty much. And I do think that uh, Lisa's right to raise this issue of oil and whether or not you can say transition and whether or not people are going to go, aha, that's a gap or uh, because we kind of move away from these things pretty quickly to say, well, was that a gap? Because that's really been his position all along. And maybe he articulated a little bit poorly. He also does have probably now five or six times the amount of money available to advertise if he needs to advertise in Pennsylvania or Texas about this. And I would add one last thing on that, which is that Texas is, uh, the leader in the U.S. in wind and uh, solar energy. It's a thing there. Um, and uh, Biden's deal with Bernie Sanders and AOC and that part of the Democratic Party was, we'll motivate you to support this candidacy because we believe in fighting climate change. So all in all, a good night, I thought, for Biden and not as good a night for Trump as Sean Hannity and others want to say, but it wasn't as bad as that first one. Yeah, Hannity. Funny, yeah. Um Go ahead. Yeah, Bruce, you say that you, you could see that at some point he was fighting within himself, meaning Mr. Trump. Uh, I noted last night at 9.53 p.m., you could almost see the conversation inside Trump's brain of, I really want to go after this guy, but I know Kellyanne told me not to do it. And he's fighting himself. So it did start to slip. He started to slip more and more. And that's when he started throwing in these weird things about laptops and and, you know, letting keep coyotes. I had to Google what a coyote was, to be honest. I'm sure a lot of us did. But it, uh, it was interesting. And I would add one fourth point that I didn't say, and it has to do with um, who is listening to this at the time. One of the biggest takeaways I took from the 2016 election was the um, analysis afterwards about this concept of a shy Trump voter, right? Where there's Trump voters out there who were polled, who were embarrassed to say they were, and I was caught up in this description from a, a reporter who went into a bar in New Jersey. This is not a joke. It's, it's real. Reporter goes into a bar in New Jersey and he says to the bartender, you know, how are how are people voting in these areas? What are people saying? And the guy said, well, you know, we got a leaner, got a lot of leaners here. And he said, well, what's a leaner? And he said, a leaner is somebody who, when you ask them, how are you voting? They lean in and they whisper to you, 
I'm voting for Trump. And then they lean back and they don't say anything else. <laughs> so some folks figure that was 16% of the, of the vote last time. And if that shy Trump voter exists, he may have done enough last night to give them some comfort to going in and casting the ballot his way. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to disclose where I sit, but I wouldn't be disappointed if um, Mr. Biden were successful. <laughs> okay. non-disclosure. Yeah, we, we've um, there's a number of points to pick up on uh, in what we've just heard in the last few minutes from both Lisa and Bruce. I mean, I would, you know, if I had my way, I'd start off with some soothing mu- music and and ask Bruce to read us some more, you know, daddy stories like like uh, uh, the Wizard of Oz. I thought that was that was a wonderful entry into the discussion. Um, let, let me. I don't want to leave this oil thing yet because as Lisa mentioned at the beginning. They were looking for clips. They're desperately in need of clips. They need something, and they need something to make a big deal out of. Um, the laptop thing, I don't know. I, I agree with you, Lisa. I don't think most people knew what the heck he was talking about uh, when he was bringing it up because it has been basically a Fox story. And then if, you, if you watch Fox, you know what he was talking about. If you don't watch Fox, which was probably the majority of the people who were watching last night, they didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and so the oil thing does and it was clear who he was targeting right he was targeting the battleground states you know like Pennsylvania like uh, Texas uh, Trump when he went on the attack um, I hear Bruce on what the polling data shows but if you're looking for an opening one of some substance that everybody can somehow relate to then that stuff on oil may be it especially if the belief is oh I never heard him ever say that before I didn't know he was saying that. I mean, we'll get to fracking in a minute because that's a that's a whole different uh, issue. Mm-hmm. But on oil, um, I, I'm not sure that that's done yet. I mean, and the way this campaign goes is a different issue every day. But it did at least give them an opening to try something because uh, at this point, all they care about is those battleground states. They've got to stop yeah. the bleeding there. And if this stops the bleeding by a couple of percentage points, it could make a difference. Well, it could make a difference. Um, but I, you know, I think if I were sitting in the Biden campaign HQ tonight or today and thinking about this, I would say, well, look, if they're going to come at us over this, then uh, is the right thing to do to try to ignore the issue and deflect and talk about other things? Or is it maybe to tackle it and tackle it in a clever way? And I guess um, when I think about those battleground states, I say really there are three groups of voters that both campaigns know are kind of in play. There's suburban women, there's older voters who didn't used to be in play and who are now, and there are younger voters who often the turnout isn't everything that people would hope that it would be. And so for the Democratic campaign this year, one of the challenges relative to last uh, election cycle that they've been doing pretty well at is motivating turnout. And Trump is the main reason why they're able to motivate turnout. Uh, it isn't Biden. I think that's pretty clear. Um, but uh, Hillary Clinton wasn't doing a great job at motivating turnout in the last election, and, and it looks better for, for Biden now. We see that in the evidence of the number of votes, more than 40 million, I guess, that have been cast already. And so when, um, when Trump said what he said about the virus, which was effectively you can't let the uh, cure be worse than the disease. If you're an older voter, 
you're hearing that a different way. That sounds pretty much like we don't really have the economic wherewithal to care about you. Um, and we know that that's a takeaway. That's been in the polling. We've seen evidence of how it's playing itself out a little bit in Florida. The second is the suburban women. Um, I think that his campaign, Trump's campaign has been trying for a long time to get him to find a way to connect with that group. And one, I remember one day he said, he called them suburban housewives. And he's just been stumbling around that cohort, uh, looking for a message that might work and not finding one. And when he said, these kids in the cages, are living in absolutely beautiful conditions, I don't think that really works for them. I think that's motivating for the other side. And if I was Biden, I'd be advertising the hell out of that. Um, but with young voters who looked like they weren't sure that Biden was going to be green enough or clean enough or Bernie enough for their taste and might sit on their hands on election day, if I was Biden, I'd double down on this message of the world is changing. Our automotive sector is going to lead the world in uh, clean vehicles. Texas is leading the world, or at least leading in America, in solar and wind power. New jobs are being created there. You can either look at that as a sword or a shield moment. And if I'm Biden, I'm not uh, accepting that there's a mistake that was made, maybe just in the articulation of it. And I'm going to put the pedal to the metal and say, this is giant opportunity. And remember, four years ago, Trump said coal was going to come roaring back uh, on his watch, and we know that's not true. Want to take a run yeah, at that, I Lisa? Mean, <laughs> sure, that's definitely one of the options that the campaign has in front of it. And the nice part about um, if Biden were to do that is that we'll definitely get to see what the result is at the end of the day instead of this kind of halfway world. Look, I've read Biden's platform on renewables and what he would do, and quite frankly, it's it's not outrageous. It's not outlandish. It's a lot of stuff that even conservatives in Canada talk about doing, quite frankly. Um, so it's, it's a good platform to take a look at, but it's just that scare tactic, right? Of we're going to, we're going to transition out of oil and, and no time frame. He didn't put the time frame in. So maybe Bruce, where he does have to go back in is to explain now yes, I agree with where that. he's going. But the problem is when you're explaining what happens, you're losing. When you're right. explaining, you're losing. I think that's a good point. And I think that, that, you know, when we think about this, we can think about it either in terms of well, what's he going to say on the, on, in the news interview, or we can say it's all going to be delivered by advertising, which I think is increasingly the case there. And of course, given all of the financial ordinance that they've got, um, if you're really saying this is about 250,000 voters in uh, Pennsylvania and the same number in Texas. To pick a uh, number. Um, if you're Biden and you're sitting on $300 million, you can find a way to get that targeted, like that timing message in, mm -hmm. along with a very rousing and rallying promise of the future um, clean energy vehicle leadership, uh, which is really, I think, a message that's worked for him in Michigan, where mm -hmm. that idea of transition could have fallen more flat. Uh, because people say, well, well, how are our car manufacturers going to do? Except we all know now that the best car manufacturers in the world are already planning to completely swap out um, their combustion engine vehicles sometime in the next 20 to 30 years. So if I was him, I would use advertising to correct the, the unsaid part 
and mm-hmm. to push that positive message into uh, and to really characterize Trump as, yeah, he loves oil like he loves coal and he doesn't love the future because he doesn't understand it. Let me. That's uh, a really good point on the future too, because sorry, Peter, just no, go uh, ahead. The, one of the things, the one of the things that I noted in Trump's opening was he defended his record and looked to the past, whereas Biden talked about the future, mm. and it's a very different approach in how they uh, decided to set themselves up. And and yeah. Biden continues to talk about the future, but as as uh, the adage in politics is, don't present a solution until people know they have a problem. So perhaps Biden's got to go back to defining what the problem is as well for for, uh, for Americans. That's a good point. That's a good point. We okay. think a lot about climate change here, and, and it's not so common in the in the U.S. Let Sorry, me. Yeah, no, that's okay. Let me bring in the fracking thing for a moment, and, and and here's how I bring it in. It's not really about the art of fracking. It's about the art of the lie. Um, Trump, in many ways, has has defined the art of the lie in modern-day American politics, at least. Hopefully it doesn't go spread beyond that, but it, it it's definitely there. I mean, in before Trump, if you lied in a campaign, the odds were you were going to be uh, on the spotlight right away and certainly for a number of days afterwards trying to explain why you lied about something. Now, Trump, since day one of his presidency has been lying about almost everything that comes up. And in the debate last night, I mean, I, you know, I lost track after the first 10 minutes of the number of of falsehoods that he was telling. If you don't like the lie word, we'll switch it to falsehoods, but they were certainly not true now, but we live in an era now after almost four years of Trump of kind of expecting it and not only expecting it in a way through expecting it, you're kind of accepting it. Now, Biden get down to the near the end of the of the debate last night. Uh, I can't remember whether it was before the oil comet or after the oil comet. It was in that same general area. Um, Trump accuses him of flip flopping on fracking. That uh, that Biden used to say he was against uh, fracking. And would end fracking. And now Biden is saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of for fracking. Uh, we've got to talk about it. Now, in the thing last night, uh, Trump accuses him of lying and accuses him uh, and says that I've got the tape to prove it. Well, in fact, it didn't take long for the networks to find the tape because, in fact, Biden had said it. Now, it's one thing to change your position. It's another thing to say I never said it that becomes the lie. So are we living in an era now where Biden can get away with the fracking line because Trump gets away with a falsehood on almost everything he says? Um, because normally this would be, we would be looking at the day after and the fracking, uh, you know, untruth would be the dominant story. But we don't live in that era anymore. It's almost like, Okay, so he, you know, he shouldn't have said it, or he's it goes against what he used to say. Does it matter anymore? Does the lie matter anymore in politics, in American politics? Um, Lisa, why don't you start? Well, if you put yourself out as being truthful all the time, then it does matter. And I don't think even Trump pretends that he's truthful all the time. Right. <laughs> I think. He injects enough of, uh, well, I heard from this guy, or people are saying. Um, so he's just repeating gossip, 
in his mind, and he's not telling untruths, but they are untruths. But for Biden, you know, I'm sad to say, Peter, I don't believe truth matters anymore. Uh, you know, the whole notion of a flip-flop is something that would kill you in elections in the past. I don't think it, I don't think it matters one whit at the end of the day. Although I did see the Facebook ad already that uh, the Trump campaign has put out, and you do see Biden in various interviews and with individuals and on caught on tape talking about these issues and then going against it last night. But I don't think it's going to have any kind of any legs. It's not going to switch a voter. It's not going to switch a voter. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, right. I think that we've gone from a world where people would say, you know, how big is the lie? And then uh, how good is the lie are the, are the defining moments. And now people are so accustomed to the lie as the norm. Um, and I have to say, I think Trump has it has kind of turned it into the normal currency of, of politics and sad to see so many Republican politicians who should know better, who should conduct themselves better over the last four years, standing by really outrageous mistruth um, that that now people are kind of saturated with big lies, uh, bad or good lies in the sense of the quality. Does it even hold up to any scrutiny? We heard stuff last night about the Bidens were selling. Biden and Obama were only sending sheets and pillows to Ukraine. And so anybody could understand what that meant, even if it was true, which it wasn't true. Yeah. Um, and now it's kind of the relevance of the lie is the only test that matters is that does it really matter to me? And so fracking will matter to some people in Pennsylvania. It will matter to some people in Texas, no question about it. Uh, but if we remind ourselves that about seven to nine percent of voters were still undecided uh, heading into this. We can either say, well, that debate and that issue or the way that Biden handled it is going to enlarge the number of undecided voters uh, significantly, which it's kind of hard for me to believe that, to be honest, or it's going to take some Biden voters and they're going to go, you know what? I don't know whether Biden was for fracking or against fracking, but it so annoys me that he might have said two things about this mm -hmm. that I'm going to vote for Trump. I mm -hmm. kind of have to suspend a certain amount of what I understand about logic uh, to believe that. Now, I have to do that every day when I think about American voters, because as we were talking about with Jerry Butts the other day, and he was saying, I believe that voters are are smart. And I was like, wow, Jerry's he's so kind about that. Uh, like. There are some voters who just aren't smart about this in the U.S. and they're voting for something that's manifestly against their interests when they side with Trump. And we've seen that in a lot of the heartland states where the farmers have really been um, undermined uh, by this guy who they thought, who told them that he was going to be their big defender. So I, I don't know. I can understand why the you know Biden supporters and and maybe just people who don't want Trump back are kind of anxious about that fracking comment, that fracking situation and the oil comment. But um, I don't know. I still look at it and I go, you know, Trump said, I'm going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And he uh, repealed it and he didn't replace it. And last night he was still talking about, well, I'm going to come up with a plan and you're going to see it soon, just like two weeks ago 
I'm going to get a nuclear arms deal with Putin before election day. Um, I really have to suspend disbelief to think Trump can say all of that and Biden can kind of muddy the waters on this fracking thing and Biden's going to pay this giant price where Trump doesn't pay any price for the lie. Is the, is the, this, I mean, I don't want to sound naive. Uh, listen, politics has always uh, been, uh, it's certainly around campaign time, no matter which side of the political fence one is on, has often seen people stretching the truth. Um, but this is different. This is so different, what we've witnessed in the U.S. over the last four years. Uh, is there, you know, is it contagious? Is it moving beyond U.S. borders? Do we see anything, Lisa, like this in in Canada uh, developing? It's obviously not at this extent, but can you see on the horizon that we got to be really careful here or this is going to invade our politics? If it's becoming to the point in the States where it doesn't matter anymore, could it get that way here? God, I hope not, Peter. I mean, that would be atrocious. Um, I don't like seeing what's happening in the United States, and I think the majority of Canadians feel that way. But I do believe that there has to be noted a difference of somebody who is putting forth their position in a very passionate kind of way, um, either left, right, whatever, um, and maybe omitting some of the counter arguments as they put forth their own arguments. Is that lying? No, I don't think that's lying at all. And I think that's what you're going to see more of. It's going to be more people being polarized on issues, not lying. They're telling the truth and they're citing their sources, but they're not giving the other side any kind of, well, any kind of credit for, for being a good counterpoint to what their point is. And that I find to be sad as well. Uh, and it, it actually does sadden me because I like the concept that Canadians are thoughtful and pragmatic and think about all sides of the issues before they make a decision. And now with this polarization of thought and ideas, a lot of it driven by, I have to say, social media, that um, that I think that is likely. But whether or not you're going to have a leader who comes out and just lies his face off all the time, I highly doubt that. Bruce? Yeah, I, think, I think Lisa's right about that. I think that there is something more fundamental in the Canadian DNA that resists the encroachment of that hyper-partisanship that we see in the U.S. And and I can look at it and say, well, you know, the longer social media plants its roots, the deeper those roots go, the more it fuels the fundraising and advertising strategies of politicians, we're going to end up more like the U.S. And so I probably do have the odd sleepless night where I imagine that that's the scenario. But uh, I can usually pretty easily convince myself that that's not how this is going to turn out. And there's a few reasons for that. One is I really believe that in ways that a lot of Canadians probably don't understand, the American system is so corrupted by money and mm -hmm. ours is so not corrupted by mm -hmm. money that these are like uh, two different planets in terms of mm -hmm. the political system. Um, there's so much money in the U.S. that goes into finding out what makes people mad, angry, hostile, you know, and just want to kind of rise up. And if you have all of the social media tools at your disposal and all the money in the world, you're going to find out ways to make a lot of people really angry. And um, we don't have that here. I sometimes see campaigns come onto the landscape 
and try to do that here. And I understand why that happens. Um, because on some very technical, not moral level, it does work. Uh, but it usually doesn't take root and it doesn't spread. And it's, in some cases, I think that's because we're better people than that. In some cases, I think it's because there's not enough money to allow it to become an industry uh, that then self-perpetuates like a military-industrial complex kind of scenario. But I think that the other thing is that the Americans have this kind of, it's like a least haves enduring two-team rivalry uh, in politics, right? And we don't have that. We have people who in the last, the run-up to the last election campaign, in our polling, we saw an unprecedented number of people saying that they would consider voting for four different parties. Um, and they don't always do that, but it's instructive that they say that they could. And Lisa's point about when you don't, you know, if a politician almost says, you know, that's a good point that you made. I disagree with it, and here's why. I know from my work, and Lisa, I'm sure you've experienced this in the various campaigns that you've been involved in, that almost nothing brings you closer to the audience in a room than saying something like that in Canada. In the United States, all of the training and all of the mindset goes in a completely different way that you should almost never say anything that sounds like that. Your side will come down on you. Uh, and the last thing I'll say is I read somewhere the other day that the weaponization of this has reached a level where um, every time uh, a Democrat gets mad anywhere in America, uh, they hit a button and send $5 to the Biden campaign. And every time anywhere <laughs> in America a Republican gets mad, they write a Facebook post. And, and I kind of feel like that's the world that we're living in, and I don't like yeah. it much. You know, it's uh, funny. It's, uh, yeah, I noticed that Diane Feinstein, uh, uh, senator from California, is getting a lot of grief because she had the audacity of hugging Senator Lindsey Graham after they had a Senate hearing. And I'm thinking, really, that's a big deal. Wow. We we have I, I guess I'll have to supply the list of all NDP and liberals I have drinks with. <laughs> Oh, and reporters, heaven forbid. Uh, yeah, that really, that, that's totally unacceptable. Um, you know, it, it's funny on the, uh, the Feinstein uh, thing because, you know, that that seat is really a hotly contested seat, the South Carolina seat where Lindsey Graham's going. And the, the, uh, the Democrats have a chance to win it at something like this. That image, I don't know, may have an impact, I'm not sure. But it does, it is something about our times that you can't get away with hugging your opponent. Um, at least in that situation, uh, you've probably seen on uh, Twitter and Instagram this week, I'm assuming it's true, although that's perhaps a bad assumption to make, but there were, there's two, two guys running for governor of a state as a Western state. And they did Utah. a Utah. That's right. Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did this joint ad, uh, where they basically said, look, we, you know, we have different beliefs, we stand for different things, but we respect each other. And they're there together in the ad. And it, it's like, in this day and age, you see that and you go, good grief, like what, what happened there? I mean, Utah has, yeah. you know, has certain beliefs ingrained in that state and the people of that state, but still it, it was quite something to see. I, I, I can't recall anything quite like that. Um, whether that, that sets the table for a new era or not, I, I don't know, but it, it's very, been very interesting to watch. Um, look, I want to, um, I, I want to 
turn this in the, in the direction of kind of wrapping up here. Um, I've got two things. In a minute, I'm going to ask you for your favorite line from last night's debate. So think about that in the, in the background. But first of all, I want a sense from each of you as to where this goes. We've got like roughly 10 days left. The final debate has happened. We'll never see these two guys on the same stage again uh, unless Donald Trump um, agrees to be <laughs> at the U.S. Congress if Biden wins and stands there uh, on an inauguration day. I wouldn't bet on that. Um, but that was it, in terms, certainly in terms of this election campaign. We won't see them together debating, arguing um, back and forth uh, again. But in the last 10 days, uh, you know, the Biden campaign, if they truly believe all these polls and if they truly believe that they didn't make the gaffe, which will change everything around uh, last night, their temptation, one assumes, is to be very careful uh, over the next 10 days, go to the right places, say the right things, but not get too worried. Um, there is also a belief within the Democratic Party that you've got to, as they say, run through the tape. If you're like a runner, you don't slow down in the last 100 meters, you keep going and you run through that tape as fast as you were running at the first of the 100 meters. Um, and then there's Trump. And do you now let Trump be Trump and just go wacko, rally to rally? Um, you know, he, he is what he is, as he likes to say, and as a lot of people say about him. So your advice, Lisa, based on having been in these races before, on the approach you think each should, side should take, and Bruce from watching them and being involved in them at a, you know, a different level, uh, your advice. Why don't we uh, start with Lisa? I would say that my advice to the Trump campaign would be to continue to go rally to rally. And we've seen this, I saw this firsthand in the 2050 campaign when the prime minister started just putting up these massive, massive crowds at hockey arenas in the GTA. And you look and you know how tough it is to get people to come out and they're putting, you know, 7,000 people in a room, perhaps that's a big deal. And that drives motivation up your volunteers on E-Day to get the vote out. And it also drives people to want to be part of the winning team. There's a psychology, right? There may be a lot of voters out there, especially in Canada. It may not be in the United States, but there's a whole block of voters out there who sit there and wait and wait and wait. And they're either conservative or they're liberal. And they're going to go with the winner. And that happens in the GTA. And they wait to see who is best placed to win because they want to be there for the winner. And boom, those rallies send the signal that, uh, yep, uh, this is the guy who's going to win. And then you have the people who jump over to, to that side of the fence. So I think that you'll see these rallies with Trump. What he's going to say, I have no idea. In terms of Biden, my advice to Biden would be, I, I would go, I would, I would suggest he, he needs to be a, a little bit more positive on the power of American ingenuity to get you out of the COVID-19 crisis because he's a little too much doom and gloom and scary when it comes to that stuff. Okay. Bruce. Yeah, I, uh, that's interesting. And I, that hadn't thought about the, um, the doom and gloom, scary aspect of Biden until Lisa brought it up earlier. And I think it's an interesting point because I have seen over the years that 
given a choice between optimism and doom speaking, uh, people will gravitate towards optimism. And it is normally the, you know, an easier place for progressive politicians to get to, I think, um, not necessarily automatically, but I think that is kind of how it turns out sometimes. Um, and, and so it's kind of unique to this campaign and this moment in time, maybe that Biden is letting himself fall into that trap of sounding like, you know, everything's bad and getting worse. Um, but I guess my, uh, my advice is that, um, from a Biden standpoint, um, this campaign always wanted to be about Donald Trump. Trump wants it to be about Trump. Biden should want it to be about Trump. He should let that cake bake. Um, and it should still be about Trump on election day. And so he shouldn't get in the way of that. Um, Having said that, um, there are ways to be more positive about the future and to put the emphasis on a brighter future uh, post-Trump, and that's probably a good way for him to kind of finish the uh, the race. I think that the plan and the policies really do matter to some audiences, but not from the standpoint of people saying, I've been meaning to get around to going to the websites and consuming the policy material, but rather just a reinforcement of what things matter to these individuals, because ultimately, this is a choice between a decent man with a better plan and a bad person with no plan. And I think that's the way that this race has was probably always going to be. That's the way that it's evolved. And um, if I were Biden, I would be happy at the prospect that Trump is going to do these rallies. I agree with Lisa that these rallies are the best thing that Trump can do to try to get his base motivated to keep them thinking that they should turn out because there is a real risk for them right now, uh, down in the polls, uh, down with money and that they kind of go, you know what, this is over and the other side is going to win. And do I really need to go to the polls? Uh, if, uh, if I feel like it's going to be a wasted effort. So that whole motivation question is triggered by those rallies. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, but having said that, if I'm Biden, I want those rallies because um, Trump is going to say crazy things. And he is not capable of not doing that when he gets in front of a crowd of people who go, give me the crazy. And that's what those crowds <laughs> do. They go, give me the crazy. I came here for the crazy. I took yeah. off my mask for the crazy. I'll give you money for the crazy. I want the last 10 days of crazy. <laughs> That's true. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, lines. Um, there were, as Lisa uh, suggested, there were more than a few lines last night. So I, I don't want to hear your top three. I just want to hear your top one um, in terms of what you thought was the best line of the night. Um, I've got one, but I'm not going to say it in case it's one of yours. I, that would be unfair. So, uh, Lisa, you go ahead. I'm going to tell you what the line is, and I'm going to be honest. I don't know which candidate said it, to be honest, because <laughs> both of them could have said it at any given time. But uh, I think picking up on the anxiety that Americans feel about their health and their prospects of a job, uh, the quote was, I'm going to shut down the virus, not the country. I thought that was very simple. People can understand it, rally behind it, and they want they want to believe it. They want to believe they can have both. Yeah, that, that was a good line, and that was a Biden line. And um, it was, a, I thought, a really excellent counterpoint to the uh, to Trump's assertion that 
you, we can't fight the virus without killing the economy. I think that that is basically what he was saying, and I think that people know that that's a, a death sentence for uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of people uh, if that becomes policy of the land. So mm -hmm. it was a it was a really great retort, and and um, you know I thought like for the whole he's a toddler on a tricycle or on a unicycle on a tightrope crowd. He delivered it well, and it was a, it was a good moment. It wasn't my. Um, I don't know if I would say favorite moment, but the moment that really stuck with me as a kind of a low and defining point in American politics was the the kids' cages are clean line uh, mm -hmm. that Trump uttered. Um, you know, he would have been schooled so much that you have to show some more empathy about this. And he kind of meandered around, uh, we're trying to find the parents to you built the cages to uh, the bad people came here and they shouldn't have come here and they're vermin and coyotes. And you couldn't tell what version of lying and uh, bad hearted uh, was going to come out of his mouth from one minute to the next. But he kind of delivered um the kind of the be all and end all when he said the cages are really clean uh, because I don't know anybody uh, who would say, well, that's really the most important thing or true or a reasonable answer to this question of what did we do and why did we do this? Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's my one. Um, first of all, I know you, you were both too young, but back in 1992, uh, when Ross Perot was in the debates uh, and was a factor in that uh, election campaign. Um, he had a running mate uh, whose name was James Stockwell. He was a, a retired rear admiral. I mean, it was a man of some uh, significance in the U.S. military. There's no question about it. But in the vice presidential debate, there was a moment when the cameras cut to him because uh, there were three vice presidential uh, candidates in the uh, in the debate that night, because the Perot numbers were somewhere around fifteen or twenty percent, he was showing it was quite significant. Anyway, <laughs> they cut to Admiral Stockwell, who looked a bit bewildered in the moment when the cameras came to him, and he said, "Who am I? Why am I here?" And it just seemed like it, so it <laughs> sounded like a skit out of Saturday Night Live. It was like crazy so last <laughs> night last night we have in one moment where trump was under attack from biden on kind of the accountability front and not taking responsibility for anything and trump turned to him and said i accept responsibility but it wasn't my fault <laughs> really that's that's quite a line that one should live in uh, infamy the same <laughs> the same way Stockwell's did. The other line didn't happen yeah. in the debate. It was actually on Twitter, and that was our friend Andrew Coyne, who had a great line on the Abraham Lincoln stuff uh, that Trump was mumbling about how he was the best uh, in terms of uh, supporting black Americans, perhaps perhaps better wait, even wait, than wait, Abraham wait, Lincoln. Wait. What? <laughs> Anyway, I'm the least racist person here. Yeah, so so Andrew Coins. Didn't you, didn't you tell us that you couldn't do two? Well, this is this saying. is really just this is just a way of getting Coin into the show. 
And All right, no answer. Yeah. You know, your old colleague from the old ad and mine from the ad issue days. But, All right, let's hear it. But he said on that, he said that Biden should have said, I knew Abraham Lincoln. I worked with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and Donald, you are no Abraham Lincoln. And I thought that was pretty funny. Anyway. That is very funny. Lisa, it's been great to have you with us, really. And, you've, you know, you, you've made us uh, think a lot about uh, a number of different issues that are involved in this campaign and about politics in general. And it's been a treat for us uh, to have you with us. And, uh, yeah, it's been great, Lisa. Thank you for doing it. And hopefully, um, you know, there'll be another time in the not-too-distant future where you'll, uh, you'll join us again from Moffat, Ontario, which is yep. uh, not far from Milton, Ontario. Anyway, Lisa, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. And uh, as always, Bruce, thank you for joining us. We're going to wrap this up now. Um, those who were expecting, because it's Friday, the, the weekend special, your, your letters and thoughts and comments and questions, uh, we'll package all the ones you've got from this week and put them into uh, to next week at some point. But special shows all next week as well and the week before the U.S. presidential election. So I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening so much, and we'll talk to you again on Monday. Mm -hmm.